Well, we're going to talk about water baptism. <clears throat> and before we can get too deep into water baptism, we're going to have to talk a little bit about salvation. <laughs> Imagine that. I think that, uh, first let me apologize that uh, I don't have any nice slides or anything like that, so, but I'll keep you on your toes one way or the other. Um, I was uh, on my way to uh, the conference this morning, and I saw a squirrel come darting out in front of my car and make a little decision and make it all the way across the rest of the way. And I thought about Brother Tim Myers and his testimony. I, I never see a squirrel cross the road when I don't think of Brother Tim. Brother Tim, is, is Brother Tim here this morning? Well, I'll get to tell his story then without him fact-checking me. Um, but he said that squirrels are very different from roadrunners in that squirrels make decisions and then recalculate and reconsider and waver back and forth. But a roadrunner, once he takes off, he can't be stopped. He gets all the way to his destination. And he said, we see a lot of dead squirrels on the road, but we've never seen a dead roadrunner. <laughs> so hopefully through this conference, the Lord will give us the decisiveness and the momentum of a roadrunner and deliver us from the equivocation and waffling of the squirrel because we don't want to be roadkill. That's my profound theological opener. <laughs> Salvation is a relationship with God. What kind of relationship? A marriage relationship. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Brother Chris Grishel was telling me yesterday that almost every language has two words for no. Analytical, knowledge about, information, knowledge about, versus relationally, I have a friendship knowing. He gave me the example of Spanish and German, of course, Greek and Hebrew. Unfortunately, the English language only uses the word know. But when Jesus uses this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, he uses ginosko, which is to say to have a relationship with you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And just the absence of the word about in that sentence is very meaningful to us. If he had said, this is eternal life, to know about the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he had sent, well, now we're no longer talking about a relationship. We're talking about fa facts or data, information, maybe even gossip. I've heard a lot of people tell me, oh, I've heard a lot about you. I'm always a little bit concerned about that. <laughs> Would you like to know me? <laughs> so <clears throat> he doesn't say, this is eternal life to know about which seems in many ways to be the promise that Christians hold out to unbelievers or new believers is you can know about God. But that's not his promise. He says this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. This is beautifully depicted in Romans 10 where Paul says, 
that you cannot call upon him whom you have not believed in. And then he says, you cannot believe in him whom you have not heard. He does not say whom you have not heard about. He entails that we must hear God in the first person encounter or else we can't really believe in him. And then he says, but how will they hear without a preacher and how can they preach unless they are sent? Entailing that we are going to come to a place where we call upon the Lord as Lord in trust when we believe a belief that comes from encountering the presence of God in his word. Those are not words about God. Those are God's word, his holy anointed word. Jesus in John 6 famously said, the words I speak are spirit and they are life. So to encounter the word of God is to have a spiritual experience because it's not words about God, it's God in his word. It's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And perhaps the word is our first introduction to the presence of God. But then that introduction to God's presence is not the end. He wants his spirit to reside in us, to live in us. So the word becomes a lived experience, a powerful encounter and infilling, Pentecost infilling in our hearts. But then that's not the end either. He wants us to commit to him, to covenant to him, even as he has committed to us. He wants us to make that covenant relationship that, that will secure this love, this reality, this power, this grace that we have experienced. And that covenant relationship is in the context of his body, the church. So I'm just not going to hide my lead. I'm going to introduce with a phrase, and you consider it as we go on. Baptism is the commitment that binds you to the relationship that saves you. Does baptism save you by itself, apart from relationship? No. Can you be saved before being baptized? Yes, through imputation. Because whenever a sincere moment of faith begins in your heart, God starts imputing to you what is lacking. But what is the design of that relationship? It's a marriage relationship between the bride and her heavenly husband. And, and what is a marriage? It's... it's it begins at a wedding altar where a vow is exchanged. And that vow does a couple things. It makes a solemn promise that commits you to this option alone. And it changes your name. And that name change corresponds to a submission change in your life. So if we are the bride, if the church is the bride, and we are part of that bride, then Baptism is going to be the moment where we lose the authority over our own lives, represented in our own name, and we take on the name of the Lord Jesus and come under submission to him. Amen? So, does Scripture speak of baptism as part of salvation? Well, I'm not here to preach 
baptismal regeneration in the Church of Christ formula or pretty much any other formula you've heard. So don't start tuning me out or lifting up your dukes. Just listen, okay? Does Scripture speak of salvation as, tie, as baptism is tied to salvation? It does. I'm sorry. I know that may cause some people some heartburn, especially after those kolaches, but it does. Okay. Mark 16, 16, Jesus says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, theologians make pretzels of their brains and say what he meant was he who believes and is saved shall be baptized. Well, if that's what he had meant, that's what he would have said. But he said he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And then Peter in Acts 2.38 is even more bold. He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized for the remission of your sins. Can I be saved apart from the remission of my sins? I don't think so. And he says, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And then Peter doubles down on it in his epistle. In 1 Peter 3, he says, in the days of Noah, eight souls were brought safely through water. Can everybody say through water? Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Now, again, a lot of pretzels get made these days. That's why you get them at the mall in those big forms. But people will say, well, that's not the baptism of water. Uh, give me a break. Give me a break. Eight souls were brought safely through water, and corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. He's absolutely talking about water baptism. And so, how many baptisms are there? Doesn't Ephesians 4 tell us there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in you all? So there's not five baptisms. Rubbish. There's not seven baptisms. I sat down with a guy who told me that I wasn't teaching baptism correctly. And I said, well, give me your position. He said, well, let's start with there are five baptisms. What? No, there aren't. <laughs> then by the end of the conversation, he said, there's actually seven baptisms. So there's, they're growing all the time. <laughs> That's just uh, William of Ockham, who gave us Ockham's razor, or the law of parsimony, says the hallmark of a failing paradigm is what? The multiplication of entities. Have you ever been arguing with someone and you pinned them down and they made an exception to their rule? And you wanted to strangle them, but you remembered that non-coercive kind of authority? <laughs> Seriously, have you ever been arguing with someone and they made an exception and then you bend down the exception so they made another exception and they pinned down that and you made it, they made another exception? And you just finally shake your head and say, go away. You are the hallmark of a failing paradigm. Well, that's what they're doing with baptism. Even though he says there's one baptism, they're making five, they're making seven, they're making as many as they want. And you can write all your notes and prepare for automatic fire when I'm done here, but I'm not taking questions until I'm done. So, baptism now saves you not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. The, the uh, NIV translates it. The New King James renders it the answer of a good conscience toward God. The um, New American Standard says... The, I don't remember what, 
I should remember it because I'm always justifying them, but I don't remember it. But what is the word that he's using there for answer? It's eparatima. Can we all say that? Eparatima? Try to remember that word, eparatima. Eparatima, it's a Greek word. What does it mean? Well, it was a technical legal term. It actually appears most often in relation to court cases. Not in the Bible, obviously, but in the contemporary Greek writings of that time. So let me just say that it's interesting that Peter says that baptism is analogous to the flood. He doesn't say it's analogous to a bath. He says it's analogous to the flood. He says, in the days of Noah, eight souls were brought safely through water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Why does he think that baptism corresponds to the flood instead of a bath? Can we agree that the flood was more than a bath? Just to establish terms here. What was the flood? It was a water event that judged and killed the ungodly, and those same waters lifted the righteous in salvation. Amen? It represented God's judgment on the ungodly and His salvation to those in covenant. The Noahic covenant. Are you with me? If baptism corresponds to that, then the ark is the body of Christ and the dead people at the bottom is the sinful nature, the carnal man, the tyrant of self-will that we have died to in repentance. So what is this word, epratima? He says baptism is our pledge. We need to think of baptism as us saying something to God. Because he calls it our answer or our pledge. Some will say our appeal, but it's better rendered our answer or our pledge to God from a clear conscience. So can we force our minds to get out of old frames and think of baptism as Peter gave it to us, as us saying something to God? What does this word epratima mean that he uses? The New Century Bible renders it like this, the promise to God from a clear conscience. Thayer says it is the avowal of consecration unto God, quote unquote. Reformers like Luther and the Anabaptist Michael Sattler translated it, and I quote, the covenant of a good conscience with God. So baptism is a promise is an avowal, is an answer, is a pledge, is a covenant, according to all of these. Heinrich Meyer offered it as a contract with God. Fritz Reniker says, Epiratima is a, quote, technical term in making a contract. Hmm. According to Rogers, Quote, the pledge or undertaking given by one of the parties in answer to formal questions 
The word then implies the registering of agreement to conditions or demands. I continue the quote, baptism is a response or commitment to God. Here the pledge is an assent to certain conditions. It may imply a confession of faith as well as the willingness to accept new duties. So this word epiratima was typically used in a court case when someone was interrogated. The word interrogate is, is in the etymology of the word epiratima. You following with me so far? So if you were brought to a court case and they were putting you under oath and then asking you questions with ultimate consequences, in the Greek court they didn't put their hand on the Bible, but they had their hand on the sword. <laughs> so same difference. They're asking you ultimate consequences. They're asking you questions with ultimate consequence. Do you follow with me so far? Amen. So baptism represents this moment in our lives when we enter covenant with God by answering a formal question of ultimate consequence. And what is that question? In essence, that question is, who is the Lord of your life? Now, why is it that that answer cannot be given merely verbally? Certainly somebody who gives their life to God makes verbal confession that Jesus is their Lord. Why does God devise that we make this declaration in what I'm going to call a demonstrative vow? Why? Why can't I just stand up and say, Jesus is the Lord of my life. That's a valid step and that's a valid thing to say. Why does he want us to stand in those waters? What do those waters symbolize? Paul in Romans 6 says that as many of us as have been baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his what? Death. His death. Now his death is our atonement. His death is where he tasted judgment on our behalf. His death is where he absorbed in his unjust, his death is where he absorbed in his righteous body the just penalty of our injustice. That's our salvation. That's our expiation. That's our propitiation. Amen? That's the blood that settles the scales of justice. Remember, in Matthew 26, 28, he serves the Lord's Supper, and he takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. Does anybody doubt that he means what he says when he says this is shed for the remission of sins? That phrase, for the remission of sins, appears one other place in Scripture in exactly the same grammar, in exactly the same words. They're using ice in exactly the same way. And where is it? It's where he says, be baptized for the remission of sins. What do we see? We see that the blood that was shed 
Our old man is placed under that blood at the covenant of baptism. Somebody says, well, then I'm not saved before I'm baptized. Well, not so, because baptism corresponds to our entrance into the covenant because it corresponds to circumcision. In Colossians 2, 10 and 11, he says that baptism corresponds to circumcision and it's an act made without hands, but it is the removal of the dirt, of the filth of the flesh. Amen? It's the removal of the body of the flesh. Excuse me. You can put that up there to check me if you want. Okay, so baptism is for the new covenant what circumcision was for the old. It is our entrance into the covenant. But we're told by Paul... Paul says, was Abraham justified before circumcision or after? And what does he say? He says, before circumcision. Because whenever Abraham started obeying God and walking in those steps of faith, whatever was lacking in Abraham's knowledge or character and practice, God was crediting, God was imputing to his account. And if baptism is our circumcision, then in the same way, we can be justified. We can be saved before being baptized if we're walking by faith. But just like an engagement is not the end of the matter, but it leads to a wedding altar and a marriage, then the first step and and commitment of faith is a great beginning, but it's got to take you to a covenant moment. Can you be justified before that? Yes, he will credit it to your account. But you have to pursue that covenant as the ratification, as the seal, as the insignia of God's covenant of salvation with you. you everybody with me so far? Good. I don't even know if I'm with myself. The venerable Matthew Henry once characterized baptism in this way, quote, a faithful answer or restipulation of a resolved good conscience, engaging to believe and be entirely devoted to God, renouncing at the same time the flesh, the world, and the devil. R.T. France says, Epratima signifies, quote, a formal question addressed by one party to the other and their response. The term expressed the total transaction. Here we have a meaning clearly relevant to baptism. I'm still quoting where the baptizer puts formal questions to the candidate concerning his beliefs and his moral commitment and the candidate responds with a pledge. Such a form of baptism is attested very early in the Christian church and may well be what is referred to in the New Testament in scriptures such as when Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart. It also may refer to, it also may be what Paul is referring to in 1 Timothy 6.12 when he says, when you make your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This clearly illustrates eparatima, end quote. Everybody still with us so far? Good. So can you be justified before baptism? Yes, but God wants a relationship and he wants a specific kind of relationship, a marriage relationship with us. So we like to quote uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer around here. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, 
when he was marrying a couple, he said, from now on, it is not your, your love that will sustain your marriage, but it is your marriage that will sustain your love. And what he meant by that is, he said, the, he, the marriage represents the commitment. The marriage represents the form that the content of love has a chance to survive within. Amen? In the same way, the content of salvation is a relationship with God through faith, in trust, hallelujah. But the form that protects that is a commitment at baptism that makes Jesus the Lord of your life with ultimate consequences. Amen? So he says his blood is for the remission of our sins. When do we place ourselves under that blood? First of all, let's, let's just acknowledge that what happened on the cross was not beautiful. It was tragic. It was the revelation of sin. And it was the revelation of sin's penalty. It is beautiful because there is a resurrection. And because he's willing to impute that death to our account. So that we don't have to expect the death that is to come in the life after. Amen? But the cross was a spectacle. The cross was a horror. The cross was agony. In a sense, it was a taste of hell in hell's judgment that Jesus endured on our behalf. And so Galatians 3, Paul, Paul uses it like this. He says, it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And that word is the word damned or damnation. Damned is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And damnation refers to eternal hell. That's what the word refers to. And so when he says cursed or condemned, damned is everyone who hangs upon a tree, he's saying Jesus endured hell's damnation on our behalf. And so it is not a lighthearted thing to place our old man under that damnation that he suffered on the cross. It is a weighty thing. It is a scary thing. Because it necessitates a separation between the new man who is being renewed in the likeness of God and the old man who has been placed under this damnation. We are not any longer united with that old corpse, that old body of death, that Paul says, who can deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ. Amen. But we have got to die. We have got to dethrone that old man in repentance. Renounce his autonomy and claims. We've got to deny ourselves. This word deny means to disown, to disavow. And yet, we're told that the word epiratima means to avow, to pledge, to promise, to covenant, to contract with God. Amen. So the seminal question that is asked as we stand in the waters of baptism is, who is the Lord of your life? Baptism is a burial. Do we bury a man who is not yet dead? No. In a funeral there is a section in the funeral forms that is called committal. And that's, that section corresponds to the moment where the casket is lowered into the ground. 
There is a kind of commitment that is not a verbal promise, but it is an enacted reality. Baptism is not just a sign, but it signifies the very thing that is being enacted. This immersion where we say, I'm putting my old man under the blood and cross and judgment of Christ. In short, I'm allowing his preemptive judgment to cover my wretched man now so that I can live unto God as one alive from the dead. Do I still have your attention? Praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. See, I like to skip my notes and then see how good I did by reading over them real quick, and I'm doing okay. Amen. You see, in, <clears throat> in Scripture, salvation is spoken of positionally or relationally or both. Can everybody say positional? positional? Let's talk about positional salvation. What do I mean by this? The corruption of Christianity has been to make salvation formulaic. But scriptural salvation is always relational and positional. Salvation corresponds to where you are, not just what you do or say. Formulaic salvation creates formulas that make you mentally assent to facts. Positional salvation invites you into a place, into a context, into a relationship. And listen, to, listen if the scripture speaks of salvation positionally. John 1.4, in Jesus was life. What's the first word there? In. In is a positional term. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. John 3, whoever believes will and this is the correct rendering of it, whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. It's often translated whoever believes in Him, but the New American Standard, thank you, gets it correct. Whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. That's the rendering in the grammar. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. Romans 3, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by His doing, you are 
in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Am I making my point yet? There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this I, for this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. But I've got so many scriptures I would spend the rest of the day. So I'm just going to abridge right there. Salvation is a place. Jesus is the place. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the place where we've got to come. And how do we enter that place? How do we come into that temple? How do we come into Christ? Well, we're told we're all baptized by one spirit into one body. You say, well, that that sounds like it's the baptism of the spirit. Well, there's only one baptism. One deals with our inner man, that's spirit immersion, and the other deals with our outer man, that's water immersion. But it's one baptism. So baptism is always spoken of, it's always one thing that he's referring to. Amen. How do we get in Christ Jesus? How do we move from the place of sin and get into that place of of, of Christ? Amen. We have to circumcise, we have to put off the body of death, don't we? That's how we entered the old covenant. Whoever breaks, whoever is not circumcised has broken my covenant. He will be put out. But whoever is circumcised is put in. <laughs> and that's how we are put into the new covenant. We circumcise the old tyranny of the flesh, sin mastery, and we make Jesus the Lord of our lives. We love to quote how he led captive a host of captives, but do we really listen to it? When Jesus comes to set us free... And I don't deny that he has set us free. But in what sense has he freed us? Has he freed us on our own recognizance? Has he come to the jail and passed out, get out of jail free cards? Do you confess Jesus as your personal savior? Yippee. Okay, you're free. Do you confess Jesus as your personal savior? Great, free. Is that how he does it? No, in fact, the Bible doesn't say that. It says that We are freed from one master and enslaved to another master. So it says when he led captive, it says when he ascended, he led captive a host of captives. (laughs) Do you hear that? He led captive a host of captives. There we were in chains. There we were in fetters of darkness, enslaved to sin. And he came and said, take those chains of sin off and put him in the bonds of love. Put him in the covenant with Christ. Amen. He is the only one who is in right standing with God. He is the only one who is justified. Great is the mystery of godliness. 
God was manifest in the flesh, seen by angels, preached among the nations, justified in the Spirit. John called him Jesus Christ the righteous. So it's not just what he's going to do for me, it's how he's going to receive me into himself. He was the perfect reconciliation between man and God. He was a human being who had the Almighty Spirit living inside of him. Amen? And then he says to us, come to me. And you, but we can't come to him until we lose ourselves. That's why Paul says, for me to live is, and to die is gain. He, Paul also says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is a major renunciation of our identity and self as we come into the only sinless man, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen? Paul says, you have died and your life is what? Hidden with Christ in God. Now what does this look like for someone's life to be hidden? Well, the autonomous, independent, sinful, condemned you has got to disappear, <laughs> has got to be unfind, unfindable. <laughs> where is that? Where, did, where can we find John? He's gone. He has no identity. He has no purpose. He has no autonomy. He has no lordship outside of Jesus. All we can find is Jesus. It's not that he's going to put a stamp on our passport. That's not what he's going to do. It's, going to, it's that he's going to make us part of him so that it is his passport when we try to leave this world of bondage and death and make exit to the world that is to come. Thank you, Jesus. You with me still? So we've got to be in Christ. And if you were going to commit identity theft, it would oftentimes be to hide from the penalty that your sins had incurred. You ever gone into the post office and seen those most loved posters in there? Just making sure you're listening. You, you know those most wanted posters with those friendly characters smiling back at you? Let's say one of those characters has brown hair and brown eyes and, you know, a beard. If he wants to hide from the law, what's he going to do? He's going to get blonde hair. He's going to shave that beard. He's going to hang out with different people. He's going to change his, his address. Everything about his life he's going to falsify in order to not be that person for whom judgment is coming. If we want to escape the judgment, we also have got to change our identity. But this is not a false change where we change the look but keep the inner decrepancy. This is where he says, I'm going to give you my spirit and you're going to be a new man. You're going to have a new birth. You're going to be a different person. I'm going to give you my name and you're going to have a new name and authority. I'm going to give you my identity. I'm going to give you my glory. He's going to share with us all the things that make him him so that we can become part of him. We have not received the spirit of fear leading to slavery, but he has, we have received the spirit of sonship or of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. What would happen if you walked up to somebody and said, Hi, Dad. 
They'd probably check to see if he had a fever. Yep, COVID's got him. If it wasn't your dad, they'd be a little uncomfortable and you would be too, or you should be. Because you can't call someone dad unless you were born to that person. You can't call someone dad unless that person lives inside of you. So he puts his spirit inside of us so that we can call him Abba, Daddy, Father. He puts himself inside of us so that we can say, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. This is not a formula. This is a relationship. And it's not a relationship of power and glory with weakness and filth. It's a relationship that changes us into the image of his Son. From faith to faith and glory to glory, we're being transformed into the image of his Son. Thank you, Jesus. He is the temple today. But it's not just an individual temple, is it? As we heard yesterday, we are part of that temple. He said, if you do it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Christ makes no distinction between himself and his body. You can't commit to the head without committing to the body. That's why we're all baptized by one spirit into one body. It's like the baptism in spirit and water just plunges us into the body because it's where we answer that question, who's our Lord? And just like the name change that occurs at the altar change, it represents a change in submission from father to husband, so the name change that occurs at baptism represents a change in submission. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. <clears throat> so, in order to be in Christ, we have to renounce self. We have to lose our independence. We have to, in short, become his slaves. We love this passage where he says, we are being led in triumphal procession in Christ. But this is a scary illusion because Paul is alluding to the fact that when Roman soldiers, when Roman generals or Caesars would go on a campaign, they would conquer a new territory. And they would come back into the city of their origin with this great parade. And in the parade would be representative captives of the place where they had conquered. And that would be called the what? The triumphal procession. And those captives would come back in chains. And yet Paul boldly and joyously says, God is sending the aroma of life through the church and he's leading us in Christ's triumphal procession. Now that's a joyous thing to those who have come to terms with the ugliness of human lordship and are so thrilled to lose their name and become a slave of Christ. But that's the aroma of death to those who are still invested in the illusion, in the illusion of self-supremacy in the salvation model whereby man is promised that he can be his own God. Make me part of your exodus, God, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. In Colossians, it says, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. The Lord said to Paul, open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan 
to God. So Satan and his power of death rule over the whole world and all who are born in it. But Jesus defeated that death and came to bring a different kind of authority, and that's the authority of God's love. Amen? So, how am I doing? I, didn't, I failed to check the clock when I started. When did I start? So I got 15 more minutes or 10 more minutes. Amen. Okay. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> so were you going to say something? Oh, he says, Brother Howard is imputing more time to me. <laughs> Whew, I like this. Amen. Okay, so. Let's just put up a scripture on the, on the uh, deal. Can you guys still do that? Or has technology regressed? <clears throat> Isaiah 9, 6. Can we put this up here? Well, that's just powerful all by itself. <laughs> Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, the screen all the way down. <laughs> uh, probably just six, but you can do seven as well, please. Actually, let's do seven as well. Can you guys do that? Oh, let's do seven and eight and nine and let's just fill it up. Praise you, Jesus. That must be the New King James, because it says more than that in the New American Standard. <laughs> Can everybody just look over there at them? This is probably that program where pastors are only supposed to quote one verse, so they won't let you put multiple in. Is that it? All right, Brother Josiah, you want to grab Isaiah 9, 6 and just read what God wants you to read? That way, if he goes long, it's the Lord's fault. <laughs> Oh, we got it. Brothers and sisters, let's look at this. For unto us a child is born, a son, to us a son is given, and the government, everybody notice that that government word is, gonna, is referring to authority of God on earth. Can I get a witness? Yeah. And the government will be upon his shoulders. I want you to notice the singular pronouns here. The government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called. Wonderful counselor, that represents what? The Holy Spirit, correct. Mighty God, hmm, that's kind of everything. Everlasting Father, I think we know what that represents. And Prince of Peace, what does the Prince represent? The Son. So in this scripture, do we not see that the child who will be born who will assume all the government of God on earth, he will be called the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, mighty God. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, no end, 
And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time forth forever. And the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Okay? Now I want you to go to Matthew 28, 19, but I want you to start in verse 18 at least, if not 17, when he says all authority is where I want to start. And I want to end with lo, I am with you always. I want to show you the parallel to this scripture that Jesus quotes. Well, that's very similar, but... It worked when we looked at them last time, so who knows? You guys got that? By the way, thank you. I know I'm springing this on you. When they saw him, who's the him here? They worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to us. What is the pronouns here? What are the pronouns here? Singular. All authority. It's as if he's saying, the government is upon my shoulders. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything we, oh, oh no, I'm sorry, excuse me, I have commanded you, and surely we, I mean I, am with you always to the very end of the age. This is a parallel fulfillment of the most clear prophecy of Christ's coming. They knew that Jesus was the child who would be born. And so they knew whose name he was referring to. What did he say in John 17? Guard them by your name, Holy Father, the name which you have given to me. The name Jesus in Hebrew, Yeshua, most similarly pronounced to Joshua, only with a Y, the name Jesus in Hebrew is a, is a combination of two words, Yahweh and Hosea. And it means Yahweh becomes salvation. Yahweh attached many words to his name throughout his relationship with Israel. He called himself Yahweh Tzikainu, Yahweh Nisi, Yahweh Repha. Amen. You can probably think of more. Somebody else help me with these. Yahweh what? Yahweh Shama. Yahweh Yira. Yahweh Shalom. But in Jesus, he called himself Yahweh Hosea. Yahweh becomes salvation. Zechariah foretold of the meek and lowly king who would come riding upon the donkey. And he says, behold, your God comes and he says, in that, he says, in that day, Yahweh will be king over all, and his name, the only name. When the angel spoke to Joseph about Jesus, he said, you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. 
He came in his father's name. He said it repeatedly. And he received his father's name. In his humanity, he was the son of God. In his humanity, he was made like us in every way. But living inside that human being was all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. Not a third of it, not a bit of it, not an expression of it merely, but all the fullness of it. The outshining, the source of God's activity in the world was situated and enthroned in the man Christ Jesus. He was human and he was divine. When, when Thomas at last touched his hands and saw who he was, he knelt before him and praised him, worshipped him, saying, my Lord and my God. Paul calls him our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when he is finishing his commission, when he is finishing his time on earth and he is pointing them toward their purpose, he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. He does not say the names. Father is not a name, Son is not a name, and Holy Ghost is not a name. But Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, is a name. Name is powerful to the Hebrews because it was more than a label. It was more than a barcode or a tag for organization. No, the essence of the person was present in their name. That's why when Avram changed his heart, he had to change his name to become Avraham. And when Sarai changed her heart, she had to change to become Sarah. Amen? And when Jacob changed from being a conniver and a manipulator, his name had to change to correspond with his heart. When God gave mankind his name, he gave them access to himself. And his presence is present in his name. Otherwise, it would be idolatry to say, praise his name. You're not allowed to praise anything but Yahweh alone. So if you praise his name, you acknowledge that Yahweh is present in his name. It is our connection point. It is our access to him. Demons are cast out in the name of Jesus. Healings are performed in the name of Jesus. Baptisms are performed in the name of Jesus because it is where the lordship of self is cast out and the lordship of Christ is ensconced. There is no place in all the New Testament that depicts a baptism where it does not say that it was done in the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not parrot Jesus' words as we do today. They obeyed Jesus' word they knew that the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit whom the Father would send in His name was Jesus Christ. It was Yeshua HaMashiach. And they took His name upon them. So he says to Paul, in Paul's telling of his own testimony, he says, it was said to him, arise and be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord. All other mikvah and immersion in the Jewish uh, faith prior to that would have been in one's own name. 
But when they are baptized in Jesus, they were baptized into his identity. It was the renunciation and loss of all identity outside of Christ. It was the placing one into Christ as a corporate body, as the temple of God upon the earth, as the place of salvation, salvation through covenant relationship. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. So, I've used up my time, but Brother Howard gave me an, a special dispensation. So this is no longer time that I'm using. This is something else. Praise you, Jesus. So, can you be baptized? Can you be saved by baptism apart from relationship? No. Baptism is not a magic act. Baptism is not a bath. It removes, it remits sin to the extent that it removes identity from you. The identity of the condemned and puts a new identity on you. Do you follow? So, if I go to the altar and I say, I do, in, in marriage to my wife, just back there. I say I do, and then I never see her again, and somebody says, are y'all still married? And she's like, well, no, I haven't seen him since the altar. And I pull out a marriage certificate and say, oh, no, we are. It's been 20 years, and I haven't seen her, but I've still got the certificate. That's another legal formula. Another word for it is fraud. So everyone who's trying to figure out what they got to do to be saved misses the point. It's not what we got to do. It's who we've got to walk in relationship with. We are not saved by what we do. We are saved in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But baptism is the vow that binds us to the relationship that saves us. Amen? And so it's important. But it doesn't describe the fullness of the relationship. It describes the inauguration of the relationship, the ratification of the relationship. Amen? Baptism needs to correspond to understanding. If you believe with all your heart, he who believes in is baptized. And when the Ethiopian was, was uh, met by Philip, Philip came up into the chariot. He says, may I be baptized? And what did Philip say to him? If you believe with all your heart. There has to be an awareness. If I go over to um, South Africa, Brother, Brother Craig and Sister Mariska, give us a wave. Amen. They're from South Africa, and we're very glad to have them. And Brother Rowan and Sister Galen and the Dupree family and all the rest of you in South Africa, we miss you, but we're with you in spirit. Hallelujah. So if I go over there to South Africa and I go into some tribe that doesn't speak English, has never heard of Christ, and I find some Zulu guy, um, and I just kind of pull on him and drag him into some water and say, I now baptize you in the name of Jesus and put him under, is that going to have any effect on his salvation? And he's coming up, I don't know how to speak Zulu, and I, do you? I don't know. But he's like, I'm, you know, saying whatever the Zulu says and confused and never heard of Jesus, but I got him under. Go home and say, whew. Yeah, we, we won several people to Christ. Um, well, I guess I would get an award for being a standard missionary, but anyway, not really. 
not really, I'm just teasing, but, but seriously, what does that show us? Reductio ad absurdum, this is taking it to the, to the extreme, but what does it show us? It shows us that the relevance or power of baptism has to correspond to our understanding of it. You know, I'll be honest, um, <clears throat> when I was a kid, we played marriage several times. I mean, like six, five. I'm, I'm sure I married several people. Honey, I'm sorry I never told you. <laughs> you know, and, and when my five-year-old comes in and says, Dad, we just got married, and he's holding his cousin's hand, <laughs> I'm not overly concerned because I know that it's not corresponding to much substantive knowledge as to what he's doing. So baptism as a ritual or an act in and of itself doesn't really amount to anything. Its power is contained in the weight of honor and understanding we have in our hearts toward what we're doing. So baptizing infants or children or ignorant people is not going to accomplish something. God is not interested in magic. He's interested in relationship. And yes, he does something for you through your baptism, but his emphasis is on what you're saying to him, not the other way around. He doesn't say that it's God's answer to you. He says it's your answer to God. So you need to understand what you're doing. If you wouldn't let a 12-year-old get married, then don't let a 12-year-old get baptized. They need to understand what they're doing. They are covenanting for the rest of their life to make Jesus the only Lord and sovereign of their existence. They can't do that. Baptism is a burial. Their sin nature isn't even mature. They can't bury a man they're not even aware of. Amen? So we need to look at this properly as, as the covenant that we have with Christ. And yes, he can impute that covenant to us prior to the ratification of it. And tragically, we can break that covenant after having made it. And no, it's not magic all by itself. But it's that beautiful moment when we renounce everything we are and we pledge to everything he is. Praise God.